Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them, but the wise ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. When the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. In the middle of the night, there was a shout, Here's the groom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, Give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. The wise ones answered, No, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. When they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the rest of the virgins also came and said, Master, master, open up for us. He replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, be alert, because you don't know either the day or the hour. The word of the Lord. Good morning, church family. My name is Isaac Blois. I'm a member here at uh, Trinity, and I also uh, teach New Testament uh, in the Tory Honors Institute at Biola University. Uh, and I get the privilege of sharing with you about this parable from Jesus. Um, well, I've been doing a lot of uh, the grocery shopping for our family as of late, you know, braving the pandemic. Um, maybe you can uh, envision this scene with me. So you've just grab the last uh, item off the shelf, cross that last item off your, your grocery list. And it's a pretty long list because it's pandemic shopping, right? So you gotta get a lot for, you know, not coming back to the store for a few weeks. And um, you head up to the front of the store and you see, whoa, there's, there's a long line. So you gotta head way off to the side and, you know, kind of line up in that little, you got your little red uh, sign on the bottom with those, those little feet. And um, you kind of settle in for the, for the long wait. You're waiting, or maybe you know, maybe it's a. It's, you're, you're headed home from work. It's been a long day at the office, and you're really excited because uh, you know there's a, a nice dinner waiting for you at home. So you're flying down the freeway, but then you get to that 55-5 interchange, and it is nothing but brake lights as far as the eye can see. You're waiting, or maybe um, you've you've taken those AP tests back in May, and you know all summer long you're kind of waiting for those test results to come out, or. Uh, or maybe you've, you've applied for uh, schools or for scholarships and, um, and now you're just kind of sitting around waiting to see is it going to be good news or bad news. Uh, may, maybe, you know, for a different way of looking at test results, maybe you had blood drawn and uh, now you're waiting for that call from the doctor to, to go through the results with you to find out, you know, what was it just a, a false alarm or are things going to start looking very different for life moving forward? Um, you know, many of us are, are waiting through this whole experience of quarantine. We're waiting for the time when we can go back to, uh, you know, shop at our favorite uh, stores or eat in our favorite restaurants. Um, and, and we're waiting. We're waiting for these things to open up. Um, you know, in a more important way, some of us are waiting for our jobs to come back. We're waiting for furloughs to be lifted. And in another way, uh, some of us are, are waiting too for changes to come about in our country, in, in policies and laws. We're waiting for equality finally to be available to all, regardless of race. Now, this is something we've been waiting for with frustration, with pain often, uh, for many, many years, and we're waiting still. Waiting is something that all of us experience. 
And some of us cope with it better than others. It's part of being mortal. You know, we have to experience life from one, one moment to the next. And sometimes time flies, you know, like maybe when you're on vacation. Sometimes time drags, like right now during quarantine. But the one thing that remains the same is that you have to go through it in sequence. You have to go from one moment to the next. Um, and and this, is, this is how we are as humans. This is the way that actually God made us to be. It's not the way that he experiences the world, although um, he, he did get a taste of it in the life of Jesus. I mean, Jesus knows what it means to, to be able to declare that my time has not yet come. And I wonder what those three days of waiting in the tomb were like for him as he's experiencing them, just like any other human waiting for God to act. Um, the preacher says there is a time for everything. Uh, and so every type of human experience, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all take shape within the sphere of time, which means we have to wait. The story that Jesus tells us in our passage this morning, it's about waiting. It teaches us about the kingdom of heaven by teaching us about waiting. Now, the term waiting doesn't show up in the text itself, but the whole premise of the short story hinges on the waiting involved in our experience of the kingdom. Now, Pastor Eric has been giving this series on the parables, and he, he keeps ta- focusing on the way that Jesus' stories are subversive because he's, the, our Lord is constantly undermining people's expectations. We'll find this true of our story today about these ten young ladies, five of whom end up with the rug pulled out from under their feet. They've been, you know, they've been waiting with expectation. They've been waiting for this wedding to arrive, but when it comes... They're locked out. Now, I want to call your attention uh, to an engraving by William Blake. I I included it within the reflection quotes. Um, And what you'll notice in this this, uh, picture here, uh, one thing that strikes me is that the ladies on the left, you know, the wise wise, uh, bridesmaids, um, they're kind of composed and and beautiful and this almost like a strong stance. Um, Whereas, you know, the the five foolish uh, ladies on the left, uh, they're, they're just sort of a swirling, chaotic, disheveled mess. Um, and, and it looks a bit harsh, even, the way there's sort of this rejection of the, the appeal for, for the woman to share, to share the oil. And I'll tell you what, this, this note of rejection, and maybe even you felt this in, in hearing the parable, this note of rejection, it, it sounds harsh, and it's definitely sobering. But Jesus is driving us towards an important truth that we need to wrestle with in order to make sure that we don't end up uh, in our own engagement with the kingdom, that we don't end up in a similarly unsettling state, being caught unawares with the rug pulled out from under our feet in terms of how we engage with this kingdom that Jesus is bringing about. In short, when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, there's a right kind of and a wrong kind of waiting. The wrong way involves presumption. It involves the attitude that expects for the door to always be open to you, no matter what. The right way, on the other hand, is to wait patiently, actively, and expectantly. Um, To long for the glorious and joyous return of our Lord Jesus. The moment in history when he will make all things right. So with this focus from the parable on waiting... I want us to ask ourselves four questions to help us think through these issues. First of all, why? 
Why must we wait? Why do we have to wait? Then second, how? How should we wait? And then we're going to finish up by asking ourselves, for what are we waiting? And for whom are we waiting? So first, we're going to ask ourselves why and how we wait, and then for what and for whom. The first question to ask ourselves is why. Why is our experience of the kingdom one that requires waiting? The parable mentions the fact in verse 5 that the groom was delayed, which means that the ladies who got themselves all dolled up for this wedding and went out to meet the groom, they had to wait around. When it comes to weddings today, waiting is something that we do a little bit of. Um, the last wedding that Lori and I went to in person uh, was that of our very own Chris and Christy Newsom. Christy directs our children's ministry here at, Tr at Trinity. Uh, it was a garden wedding, and I still remember uh, vividly, you know, Pastor Eric up front, and there's Chris, the groom, and all of his groomsmen, and then you, obviously, you know, the, the bridesmaids are, are escorted up kind of in, in, in the sequence. They all get up front, and then there's, there's the moment, the, the, you know, really one of the most important moments at any wedding is, is everyone turns, and you wait for dun-dun-dun-dun, dun-dun-dun-dun. Here comes the bride. Um, and you don't have to wait a long time, but it's just enough so that you can really, we can really make that moment special for her arrival. Um, now, in the first century culture, there's a few differences when it comes to weddings that are important for our story. First, the main event of the wedding is not the entrance of the bride, but actually the entrance of the groom. Notice in the passage how there's that that shout uh, from, uh, for, for everyone, here comes, uh, the, the shout is, behold, the groom. And I'm thinking of this as almost like, here comes the groom. Um, he's the one, he's the one that everyone's been waiting for. And a second issue that we need to know about is the issue of timing. We're such sticklers in our culture about keeping to the schedule. But it wasn't quite the case back in Jesus' day. You see, back then, timing is relative, which meant that there's a whole lot more waiting around. Um, the way it would work was that the bride, she'd be waiting at her family's house, and, and she would send out, they would send out, her family would send out um, representatives to go and uh, begin some interactions with the groom about the, the dowry and that whole situation. And then when it's all ready, the groom would come and come to the bride's house, pick her up, and then make a procession um, back to his own house. Now, um, and, and so all that time when um, uh, the interactions are taking place, the bride is waiting and the bridesmaids are waiting, okay? Um, this long buildup to a wedding reminds me of a wedding that I attended while, while I was serving as a midterm missionary in South Africa just after graduating from college. For the year that I was there, I was working with a shack church, um, and there was one of the young leaders in the church. He was getting married, okay? Um, and so I remember the whole church gathering to, to celebrate this event. I remember vividly the long, slow buildup of the day, particularly how there was this big procession from the groom's house to pick up the, the bride from her family's household. Now, I want to give you a little flavor of this because I, I took a video of it, so I'm going to show it to you here on the screen. Just take a minute to, to watch the buildup. Yeah, yeah. 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 
Sorry for the, the shaky, you know, 19-year-old Isaac camera, camera um, taking there, but one thing that I, I hope you picked up from the video is just the, the note of celebration, the jubilation that's going on, all the singing and dancing. Um, but another thing that maybe you picked up on is just, you know, in light of the, the, the joy and the, the, the um, celebration, there's sort of a, an unconcern about scheduling here. You can imagine this going on and on and uh, with the expectation that the bride and all the other guests, well, they can wait around, you know, during the course of the, the celebratory procession. Um, I've also got one more picture just to give you a, a, a shot from the, uh, you know, the, the, the procession down the road and all the cars as we go again to pick up the, the bride and then head off to the wedding. Um, now, the details from this South African wedding aren't quite the same as that of first century Palestine. And one important difference is that in Jesus's parable, the procession to pick up the bride happens at night. And so it's a torchlight procession. Uh, well, since I'm showing you wedding pictures anyways, I couldn't help but throw in this torchlight procession from our own wedding. You'll see that uh, there. So you see the torches of uh, our... Um, color uh, holding things up. Well, uh, anyways, um, this torch procession aspect of first century weddings provides Jesus with the major conflict in the parable. That is, the lamps carried by each of the bridesmaids and the oil required to keep them lit. Remember, what, that what divides the group of ladies into two camps, the two groups of five, is whether or not they have prepared extra oil to keep their lamps lit after a possible a delay, and therefore a time of waiting. Now, the reason they need extra oil is because the type of uh, handheld lamps they're holding, uh, they only burn for about 15 minutes, and then you have to refill them with oil. So this gives you a, a picture of the kind of short-range planning of the foolish women, since they're not prepared in any way for a lengthy wait. Now, before we get into the question of how the two groups of ladies, the wise and the foolish, do their waiting, I still want to address the question of why they're waiting and try to apply that a bit to our own experience of waiting as Jesus' followers today. These young ladies have to wait because the coming of the groom has been delayed. Perhaps his negotiations with the bride's parents took a little longer than was planned, or perhaps they got a little carried away in all their celebrations back at the groom's house. Well, since Jesus has told us that the incident in the story relates to the kingdom of heaven, I think we have freedom here to think about Jesus as the groom. And so we, it's worth asking ourselves, why, why do we have to wait for Jesus' return? For his grand entrance to bring the joyous festivities of the kingdom to a start. And how are we experiencing that period, that lengthy period of waiting? Now, I don't know if I have a perfect, a full answer to this question of why Jesus has delayed his return for so long. Um, it's been 2,000 plus years and counting, and we, the church, his bride, are still waiting. We're still waiting for him to come gather us up for the wedding feast. Now, what, one reason that, that I think maybe I can envision for the long wait, it's, which is mentioned in other places of scripture, is that I think God might be waiting to give time for more people, more sinners like us to repent and so come into the feast. It's almost like he's, he's extending the deadline. You know, Lori and I are both teachers, and so I get the impression here of 
you know, sometimes a teacher will extend grace, extend a deadline to, uh, for those students that inevitably wait until the last night before they write their paper. And so, you know, we give, give that grace. And I, I do think there's a little bit element of that. God is actually graciously extending the deadline, giving more time for more of us sinners to repent. Um, I wonder also, though, if part of the reason for Jesus' delay is uh, in, in, in his, his second coming, is shown in the parable about the ten bridesmaids that God actually wants to test those in his church. You know, since the church ends up being a place that's it's a mixed community, it's filled with those that, uh, you know, they're here because they genuinely love Jesus and they, they want to follow him, but also maybe it's, it's, it, there are people that are, are here with selfish and, and wrong motives. Um, and the delay in Christ's return allows for these differing motivations to be exposed. You know, if the groom had just come right away when the ladies thought he would, then all ten of them would have been able to come in to the wedding. Nobody would have been left out, right? Uh, but it's, it's if the groom had... Um, but uh, they, they all, all ten of them would have been able to come in despite the fact that five of them were actually unprepared. And so the lengthening of the waiting period shines a spotlight on the women's preparedness. And this preparedness seems to be an important aspect in their ability to joyfully experience the blessings of the kingdom. My own response to Jesus' delay in returning has often actually revealed to me my own faulty reasons for following Jesus. I wonder if maybe you've experienced some of these feelings as well. For instance, one attitude I've often fallen into in relation to Christ's return is an attitude of indifference. His return has already taken so long in coming, so why worry about it? Why even think about it? There's so much going on in my life right now and in the world around me, that I'd rather just focus on here. I'm indifferent. A second attitude we can have in relation to Jesus' delay is that of doubt. He said that he would come back, but after 2,000 years of waiting, we've become skeptical about whether he actually will. Is he really going to do it? Is he really going to come back? The idea of his return, it's so far in the past, it's so foreign to everyday life that I've found myself at times doubting whether it's actually ever going to happen. Or a third attitude that, that maybe we have in relation to Jesus' delay is one of anger. I mean, I know that Jesus, that when he returns, that'll be it. That'll be the end for evil, for pain. He's going to fix it all. So why is he waiting? Why doesn't he come back now and fix the injustices in our world? Why not come now and rescue the oppressed, pay back the oppressor, restore peace and justice to our world? Lord, how long? With the psalmist, we cry out, how long shall the wicked exult? And so we find ourselves angry at his decision to wait, thinking him too slow to act. These responses to the delay of Jesus' return are natural, and I don't think that God is surprised by them. But he does ask for us to continue our waiting despite them, fighting against these unhelpful feelings with an even deeper commitment to hope. God's people of old have always been those who wait and hope. And in fact, this is a, a, even a broader human experience. Um, I'm mindful of 
Um, Alexander Dumas's novel, great novel, The Count of Monte Cristo, which after its uh, long movement through the story, um, the, the main protagonist, the Count, who's, who's spent uh, countless years uh, wrongfully imprisoned, um, planning and waiting for ways to make things right on the tail end. At the end of the, the book, he writes a letter to uh, the, the, the son of the one man who was willing to help him while he was in prison. And here's what he says to that young man. He says, all of human experience is comprised in these two words, wait and hope. Such a posture of waiting and hoping seems to be precisely what the prophet Habakkuk wants to communicate in his short book. He begins his prophetic ministry with a declaration of exasperation and frustration to God, which is how the book starts. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? But then the prophet hunkers down with an expectant, determined watchfulness. I think I've got this next uh, uh, verse for you on the slide here. Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look to see what God will say to me. And here's the response with which God strengthens his weary prophet. Still, the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now, to bolster the command that he gave Habakkuk to persevere in waiting for the appointed time, God proceeds to give one of the most profound descriptions of piety in all of Scripture, declaring that, quote, the righteous shall live by his faith. This description of a righteousness that's determined by faith, it's picked up all across Scripture. It's in Romans, it's in Galatians, it's in Hebrews. And what's important for us is that Habakkuk, his faith is so interwoven together with his experience of waiting. So at the end of the day, even if we can't see the full picture of why we need to wait, we at least can grasp the importance of our waiting. It's a way to demonstrate our faith in the God who has promised to act, and he will do it, though within his own appointed timetable. Next, we need to shift into looking at how, how we should go about waiting. Indeed, continuing to wait, as we've done for 2,000 years as the church for the return of our Lord. How should we do it? How should we wait? The first thing we can say about the kind of waiting we need to undergo is that on one level, it has to be patient submissive waiting. The bridesmaids cannot be the ones to tell the groom what to do, to give him his directions about what to do and when to do it, maybe like a, a wedding planner does in our day today. No, the bridesmaids are at his mercy. They must submit to the timetable of the groom. So too with our waiting for Jesus. We can't influence his return or demand it. Although, we can pray for it, as does the early persecuted church in the book of Revelation. They say, come, Lord Jesus, in a similar way to the way the psalmist will often lament and ask God to arise after lamenting his long delays. But, but in our waiting for Jesus, we still need to submit to his timing. Waiting requires the waiter to be in a position of dependence on the one waited upon. 
When Lori and I were in Scotland, we celebrated an anniversary at this really fancy dinner place out in the country where they had converted an old country manor into a restaurant, which meant that the tables were spread out in various rooms throughout the house. Now, that's the first place that I remember being waited upon, literally, by someone standing near the doorway in the room, just waiting, watching, uh, until we were finished eating whatever hors d'oeuvres we were working on. It's the first time that I, I thought of the job of being a waiter as quite literally consisting of waiting on people. That is, serving them food, waiting for them to eat it, and then clearing the plates away and maybe serving them again and waiting again kind of back and forth. The waiter is hence entirely at the beck and call of the dining patrons. This kind of submissive waiting reflects the relation of dependence that we enter into when we believe in Jesus. We can only wait for God to work for us. There's nothing that we can do that will accomplish our salvation. I'm mindful here of the, the God's people as they face the Exodus event. I've got a slide for this um, to, to read you a verse here from Exodus. Just as Israel was standing on the shores of the Red Sea, about to be walloped by the advancing, furious Egyptian army, Moses didn't tell them to act. He didn't tell them to pick up their swords and start fighting. He didn't tell them to do anything. Instead, his only command, as you can see on the screen there, was stand and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Moses' command uses, in fact, the same word that the, the, the prophet Habakkuk used, as we just saw above, when he said that, they, that he would stand on the ramparts to watch for God's saving work. Uh, where Habakkuk would wait, he would wait for it. Wait for God's work, even though it might delay. Our own waiting for Jesus is submissive insofar as it requires us simply to stand and watch as God works our salvation for us. Just as the five wise bridesmaids simply had to wait for that announcement that the groom has arrived. Despite the fact, however, that the waiting which these ladies do is patient and submissive in that they can't control when the groom shows up, their waiting is also quite active. And here's where the great divide arises, separating between the wise. The waiting of the five wise bridesmaids is active because they have prepared in advance for the groom's delay. You know, you can see in the story there in verse 4, they took oil in their flasks, whereas the foolish ones didn't. And remember I said before, the, the oil is only going to last 15 minutes here. And so the, 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 the lack of preparation of the foolish ones is envisioning, well, we've got this 15-minute window, and if it goes beyond, I don't know. I mean, part of here, the waiting of the five bridesmaids, they took their oil. All ten of the ladies are excited to be part of the wedding festivities, but it seems that five of them somehow overlooked the fact that the waiting could take a long time. Or maybe they just assumed that if, if, if it did take a long time, they could simply borrow some oil from their neighbors. Whatever the reasonings in their mind, they failed to prepare, and it had serious repercussions. You see, there are some things you just have to do on your own, and being ready for the return of Jesus is one of them. Now, we can definitely encourage each other as a community in our communal waiting for Christ's return, but as one commentator put it, no one can ultimately rely on another's preparedness. You have to prepare for yourself. Here's where the subversion of the story comes in. 
Someone who thinks they're on the inside actually ends up being on the outside. How can we make sure that we don't slide into this detrimental form of presumption when that important day comes of Jesus' return? Indeed, it's going to be a moment of crisis when judgment invariably occurs. Well, it seems like the thing separating the two groups of women is a commitment to readiness for the groom's arrival. On the one level, all ten of the ladies fall asleep, and so all ten are caught unawares. But the five wise, one, wise uh, ladies, they've prepared in advance, and so it's not a problem that they're caught sleeping, because they've already made provision for themselves for whenever the groom might arrive. Foolish ones failed to do this. So what does this mean for us as Christians who are waiting for Jesus to come back? Well, just as for the bridesmaids, Jesus' return has been long delayed, and being ready for his return cannot mean that we try to figure out when it's going to happen. We have to simply accept the fact that his return is going to be a surprise, and that we'll probably be asleep when it happens. Now, I don't mean like we'll literally be sleeping. What I mean is that we probably won't be, you know, meditating on scripture in our quiet times, or praying, or, you know, having our hands uplifted in, in, in worship when that last trumpet sounds. You know, we, we might be snoring in our beds, or munching our dinner, or who knows, maybe honking and yelling at that person on the freeway who's going just too slow. And God's not going to hold this against us, since being prepared for the second coming of Christ involves much more of a holistic lifestyle. I don't think we need to go so far as some of the early commentators uh, in the church who interpreted the oil of the wise bridesmaids to be a life full of good works, which the foolish ladies lacked. You know, I'd, I'd be more inclined to follow the reformers' take on the passage uh, who interpreted the oil as genuine faith. But I think we can actually, you know, merge this together the way the New Testament does as a whole, merging into the, the thing that we need to be prepared has got to be a broader way of life characterized by faith and faithfulness. The preparedness seems to involve doing what we can to get ready for meeting the groom. For the bridesmaids, this meant bringing extra oil. I was thinking here of a silly way to say, like, we need to be oily Christians. I figured, ah, maybe that doesn't quite work because, you know, the connotations of oily aren't the best. But, you know, if anything else, for us as Christians today, I think this means doing the kinds of things which are aligned with being a follower of Jesus. Most importantly, it means seeking to know Jesus so that when he returns, he will be able to recognize us as his own and declare that he does indeed know us. Since, you know, in the story, it's because Jesus doesn't, it's because the groom doesn't, doesn't know the foolish bridesmaids. That's why they get rejected and ultimately shut out of the kingdom. So we've looked at the the why and the how of our waiting. I want to shift now in the rest of our time to be, to be focus on what we're, the, the, the things that we're waiting for. What are we longing for when Jesus returns? A big part of our active waiting involves our internal longing for what Jesus' return will bring about. The fact that Jesus used a parable about a wedding to teach about his second coming shouldn't be a surprise in light of the fact that Scripture often presents the great Christian hope as being for a final climactic wedding. You know, at the end of the Bible, in John's visionary apocalypse in Revelation, after describing all of the horrendous persecutions that God's people will face throughout history 
and then even more so coming to the end of history, the end of time, John tells us that God's people will rejoice and exult because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's in Revelation 19. What this final marriage means for God's people is that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, when John writes that in Revelation, he's drawing here on a famous prophecy in Isaiah that presents God's future deliverance when, again, God will wipe away every tear from his people's eyes. And it's a deliverance that Isaiah presents metaphorically as a feast or a banquet like you would have at a wedding. Um, and I'm, I'm mindful here of the fact that, you know, when you go to a wedding, you, the, the, the ceremony is, is cool, but a lot of the fun happens at the reception, right? Where there's feasting and dancing. And that's what Isaiah presents as the picture of God's salvation for his people. It's going to be a joyous uh, occasion. And I've got a slide for you this to get a, a picture here of the, the feast that's involved. Um, let me read a few more verses here from Isaiah depicting this feast. Um, uh, in, in chapter 25, Isaiah, Isaiah picks up on this celebratory aspect of a, a wedding, uh, promising that God will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow. And this promised and hoped-for banquet will be an occasion for such joy for God's people that, quote, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. We wait for the Lord, then he brings the feast. Waiting to feast and so experience the full blessings that God has in store for his faithful followers, this is the great hope of the Christian faith. Isaiah knew of this hope for feasting, and so he encouraged God's people to wait for it. Even though God hid his face from his people, Yet Isaiah could affirm earlier in his, in his book that I will wait for the Lord and I will hope in him. And to a people who wanted to act because they uh, thought that God was failing to act, Isaiah's prophetic advice was this, and this is in your uh, reflection quotes as well, but the verse from Isaiah 30, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Knowing that this kind of trustful waiting was difficult, God had Isaiah add on this promise. Maybe you've heard this before. Though they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. And ultimately, Isaiah, whose message coheres now with what we heard before from Habakkuk, all to help us understand what Jesus is telling us from this parable about waiting, Isaiah ends with the following powerful description of God. Our God, the God of the waiters, he says, and I've got this on the screen as well. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. God acts for those who wait for him. God acts for the waiters. He works wonders on behalf of those who take their stand to see what he will do. And this stance is exactly what should characterize our posture in relation to Jesus' second coming. We are poised 
ready and waiting to see the great thing that he will do, the moment when he will make all things new, when we will be ushered into that joyous celebration of the redeemed, the wedding banquet, feasting together with the saints of old and experiencing the blessing of a world made right. The thing that we're waiting for, the what, is the wonderful banquet for the marriage of the Lamb. But even more important than the for what of our waiting is the for whom. We're waiting for Jesus. So much of the joy and longing for Jesus' second coming, it's wrapped up in the amazing and powerful ways that he will act so as to make things right in our world. But we can't forget that it's our longing to be with Jesus that ultimately undergirds our waiting for his return. I remember uh, something that my four-year-old told me, uh, Ailey, uh, at breakfast just, just a few days ago. She said this to me. It was profound. She said, Daddy, the best thing about heaven is that God will be there. I, I, I just thought, that's, that's so true. I mean, sure, there's all these great things, you know, all these awesome experiences that you're going to have in heaven. But you know what the best thing is? God will be there. We'll be, we'll be able to enter into relationship with him fully and completely. Best thing about heaven is that God will be there. It's so true. Apart from all the amazing blessings we'll get to experience when Jesus returns, the most important part is that we will finally be with him. I was thinking here again about this, this idea of a wedding. You know, a wedding is only a, it's just a beginning. It's, a, it's an amazing celebration. It's a wonderful point to, to, uh, in, in, a, in a couple's life. But it's just the beginning of getting to know each other. Um, and so here, you know, Lori and I, after eight years, we're, we're just constantly getting to know each other more and more, and, and, and we'll go on like that. And so I'm picturing here the wedding between Jesus and his bride, the church. It's only the beginning of an eternity of getting to know each other. I think that the parable of the ten bridesmaids, it winds its way around to this truth as well. Because the brief scene, uh, when it comes to its close, we see the five foolish, unprepared bridesmaids asking to be let into the party. But they're shut out because of their failure to be known by the groom. The fault lies not in their uh, not being on the guest list. Uh, instead, the problem is that their unpreparedness has caused them to lose contact with the most important person for the occasion, the groom. I can't help but see a connection between being prepared for the arrival and then being known upon arrival. Um, you've got to be prepared so that when the arrival happens, you will be known. A lifetime of seeking to know Jesus is precisely the kind of preparation that's required to make us ready for his return. Just as Paul writes that at the present time, yet we are knowing, yet only in part, but on that final day, we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. That's what Paul envisions as the end. We shall know fully, even as we are fully known. I love the back and forth. We will know him, but we will be known by him. So too, it is for our readiness when it comes to Jesus' return, a lifetime spent in seeking to know our Savior to the fullest capacity that we can at present, even though if it's only in part. That is the kind of preparedness that's going to make us ready to be known when he appears on that glorious day. So how do we watch out that the rug isn't pulled out from under our feet when the trumpet's blown at a time we don't expect, announcing the groom has come? 
It's by cultivating a relationship with the Lord Jesus right now, in the present. It's by entering into the wonderful marriage relationship with the Lord Jesus right now, in the present. And it's entering into that relationship that he's opened up for us. I, I, I love the picture that the prophet Hosea presents of the marriage between God and his people. It's a, Hosea promises that God would betroth us to himself in faithfulness so that we should know him. And this is exactly the kind of relationship that Jesus has given up his life in order to bring about. As Paul says in Ephesians, Jesus gave up his life for the church that he might sanctify her and so present her to himself in splendor as a glorious bride. Well, these amazing goods, the good of feasting at the final wedding banquet at the marriage of the Lamb, and the good of joining in full and complete union with the Lord Jesus, they're not meant merely for the future. Although we will only experience them fully in the future, our longing for them can change how we live and act in the present. But we need to be willing to wait for them. Lori and I watched uh, the Hamilton musical on uh, TV the weekend when it was released. She'd been reading the massive biography of Hamilton uh, on which the musical is based and, uh, so that she could be ready to watch it. And we even had tickets uh, so that we were, were waiting to go see it in, in, back in May. Obviously, we're going to have to wait a little bit longer for it. Um, but one song from the musical, sung by Aaron Burr, speaks of his love for a woman, Theodosia, for whom, for various reasons, he has to wait till he can marry. Now, in the musical, there's this interchange between Hamilton and Aaron Burr about the situation, where Hamilton says that if Burr truly loved this woman, then he should just go get her. It's the classic attitude of the go-getter personality. If you want something, then do something to bring it about. But Burr takes the approach of the waiter. He sings, if there's a reason I'm still alive when everyone around me has died, then I'm willing to wait for it. Yes, I'm willing to wait for it. Now, Burr's motivations are, are too complicated to get into right now, but we as believers need to view Jesus' return to be of such value that we are willing to wait for it. Some goods aren't really that good at all. They're not worth waiting for. But the highest of goods, and Jesus' return is precisely that, demands of us that we sacrifice whatever time it takes in order to wait for it, so that we can be prepared for it when it does come. A close friend of mine shared with me about his struggles of waiting for marriage just as many single people find themselves stuck waiting. He told me that he would regularly pray from Psalm 25, which, which reads, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Do not let those who wait for you be put to shame. And joining with this spirit of waiting is one way that all the church can come together. Because all believers unitedly are waiting for our final marriage with Jesus. When he returns to draw us to himself. And we know that God will assuredly keep this promise. Because just as Jesus wasn't put to shame in the grave, but was raised gloriously on the third day, so too will he raise us up with him on that glorious day of his return, for which we wait patiently, actively, expectantly, with perseverance and hope. Would you pray with me now?
Father, thank you so much that you have given us this sure promise uh, that Jesus will return and he will make all things right in our world. He will usher us into the great feast of your people, the wedding feast, and then we will know him, be known by him. Thank you for this promise. Lord, help us to wait for it in hope and in perseverance. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.